As we turn to God's word this morning, let's, uh, let's in your bulletin, you'll see the summons to the word. Uh, just as we, as we sang, as we prayed in song, we asked God, we were asking God, the spirit to come and to change us, to help us to see new things, to help us to seek out new things. And this summons to the word uh, very much calls us to consider the path that we are on this morning. So let's read these words together from Matthew chapter 7. Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus' words are always so sobering, aren't they? Which path are you on? Are you on that narrow path? That very counterintuitive, countercultural. The reason, the reason that the road to destruction is so wide is that it's just what everybody's doing. It's, it's the path. It's, the, it's, where, it's where all of what seems natural, what seems normal, that's what people do. And so you just go along with the flow. It's broad, it's easy, it's straightforward. It just, in the moment, makes so much sense. But the, the road, the way that is narrow... The gate, that, the gate that is small is one that is very countercultural, very counterintuitive. So as we think about that, we recognize our need for God's word this morning. And Nehemiah chapter 13 is a beautiful text, a beautiful text that is a troubling text in, in some ways, but is, is really beautiful because it, draw, it brings out the crisis of what it means to be the people of God. Now, think about this. If you could go anywhere... If you could go just hang out somewhere, if you could go um, to, you know, on an afternoon that you've got free or an evening that you've got free, let me ask you, would you rather go to a bar or to a gym? Think about that. All right? It's pretty, I mean, for some of you, it's a no-brainer. For others of you, it might be a little different. Now, this is kind of interesting. It brings out our, our temperaments a little bit here. Some of us, think about this. You know, you go to a bar, in a bar, just, you know, think about Cheers, right? I mean, they used to watch the, the, the sitcom Cheers, right? You want to go to a place where everybody, what? Knows your name, right? A place that just where people are going to accept you. I mean, you can walk into a bar, it's like, hey, and you walk in, and you just, it's just people are accepting. You can be whoever you want to be in a bar. The, the bar for being at a bar is quite low, right? It's a sense of acceptance, of welcome. And maybe that's what the church is supposed to be like, right? The church is supposed to be like a bar, where I've come on in, welcome, great. Let me ask you, how much change happens at a bar? How much growth happens at a bar? Maybe it might be growth, not, not in the way that we might think. And often, how many good things, really substantially good things happen at a bar? So the bar has had that sense of attraction, of, of welcome, of just, hey, come on in and be who you are. And there's a sense of acceptance, of tolerance. And often churches really, they can be that way. Oh, we're so accepting. We, we welcome everyone. And you get in there and you realize that no one's changing. And then if you're in a bar long enough, you often realize that there are people there who really do need to change. <laughs> Fights break out. All kinds of things happen in a bar, right? All things, I guess things happen after a bar, right? And, and you realize that actually, as welcoming as it may be, at some point, there needs to be some change. Now, those of you, what about, that's the bar. Now, think about the gym. 
going to the gym instead. What happens at a gym? How many of you would like to walk into a gym? How easy is it to walk into a gym? It can be really intimidating, can't it? You walk in and you see these people working out and they're, they're shapely and they're, they're, you know, they're, they're all, t- and they look like these, you know, sort of these models off of TV and you think, I'm supposed, I can't, I don't look like that. And not only that, you don't know what you're doing, right? You go up to the weights and the various machines and you're like, you don't want to be that person who's sitting there like, looking out, reading the instructions. You want to go like, you want to pretend like you know what you're doing, right? Or you grab those weights and just start pumping, you know, because you know exactly, because you've been working out for the last 10 years, right? It's intimidating going into a gym. It doesn't seem like it's for everyone. It seems very exclusive. And yet what's, hap- and yet what's happening at a gym, in theory? People are growing. There's growth happening. There's a sense of people are changing. They're becoming more healthy, at least in theory. Most of the time, most, 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 let's be honest, most, most gyms are much more about how we look than actually being healthy. It's about you know, exercising certain muscles that are going to make us a, a certain shape, etc., etc. But the idea is that, and so we went, is the church more like a, 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 a gym? It's, you go to the gym and you... you um, you know, you go and you, 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 you grow and you become a better person, a healthier person. But again, even a gym, not everyone can get in. Not everyone can be there. Not everyone feels comfortable being there. In fact, furthermore, at a gym, what can happen sometimes? You can get hurt, right? How many people I've seen at gyms, they, they especially, you know, guys I work out with, you know, we, we, uh, we lift heavier weights, and uh, you have to be very, really careful doing that. You can really hurt yourself if you're lifting a heavy weight, and over time, even, you can hurt your rotator cuff. There's all kinds of things that can go wrong, and you can get hurt at a gym. And so the question is, what, what, what should the church be like? And this morning, I'm going to suggest the church should be neither like a bar, should have the welcome of a bar, but not all the downsides of a bar. And it shouldn't be a gym either. I mean, it should have the aspects of a gym of growth. But this is so important that the, 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 the church of Jesus Christ is to be neither a bar nor a gym, but a hospital. A hospital. Think about that. Who's not welcome at a hospital? There's actually an answer to that question. It's a very important answer. Who don't you find in, the gym, in, a, in a hospital? Healthy people. Yeah, you don't find healthy people. You only, go to a, you only go to a hospital. You only go to the doctor if you know you're sick. Hmm. It's interesting. But in that sense, anyone who is sick, anyone who is sick can go to the hospital. But when they go to the hospital, the, what, there's a goal. <laughs> there's a goal in mind, isn't there? It's to get better. It's to be healed. It's to grow. And that may sound so simple. It's like, well, duh. But if you know anyone in the medical field, anyone who's a, a nurse, a doctor, a dietitian, a nutritionist, um, I mean, anyone, a physical therapist, you, sit, you just have coffee with them sometime and ask them how many of their patients want to get better. 
It's amazing. In fact, I, 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 as a, I used to minister to young adults, and many of them, some of them would, would be medical students, and or they'd be residents. And you could see in just the, from the time they entered into medical school, as they graduated from medical school, as they got into the residency and the further training after that, and then beyond as they actually became doctors or became experts in their field with experience, the, the idealism of that freshman, that, that first year med student who wants to help people and just wants to help, now change the world and how over time in that experience, the temptation to become jaded, the temptation to become cynical, the temptation to just say, you know what, what am I even doing here? It can be overwhelming so often because precisely, because you and I are part of this, right? How many of you, I mean, this is, this is, I can ask my family, I will never go to the doctor. They're like, don't you think you should go get that checked out? I'm fine. Right? Are you ever like that? You're, just like, You're not going to go to the doctor? I'm, I got this. I got this. So the question is, we look at Nehemiah 13, we're going to see some, some really crazy stuff happen here. And it, it, it comes from this idea, listen, this is so important, that, that, that the, the people of God are to be a hospital. And the question is, are we, or do we, are, do we, do we want to be healed? Are we sick? And do we need someone to help us in that? I'm using this metaphor here uh, of, of medicine because I think it helps us understand what it means to be the people of God. So, understand, so, the people, so the people of God are to be a hospital. And a hospital implies, this is just really important, the hospital implies that you're going to go somewhere and actually submit yourself to an authority over you in the hope that somehow they're going to help you, knowing that there's such a thing called malpractice, knowing there's a thing such as misdiagnosis. There's still this sense that I cannot get better, I want to get better, and I can't do it on my own. And that can lead to a really interesting exchanges between a healthcare professional and the patient. Of do you really want to get better or not? And in a church context, a real church, a real people of God is a church of people who want to change. They want to be healed. And they want to be healed enough that they're willing to subject themselves, to submit themselves to the authority of the church. And they want to be, they not only want to, to be healed, but they actually want to start helping others heal. And that's, this is what it means to be the people of God, to be a community of healing. Not only in the sense that I'm being healed, but I'm here to heal others. And, the whole, and gang, this is the key. We, we, if we want to heal, we must first want to be healed. If we want to heal others, we must, our first, we must first want ourselves... Our, to, we want, I'm sorry. If we want to heal others... We must first want to be healed ourselves. And we see this, this idea in the text. That, that, that he, Nehemiah 13 is really fascinating. You have this climactic session in, in Nehemiah 10, 11, and 12, where you have God's people. The wall is finally rebuilt so that everything's, everything's done now. The temple's been rebuilt. The wall's been rebuilt. The, the, the city has been repopulated. And it's this climactic celebration of, of, of rejoicing. Over, it's just taken 100 years, approximately 100 years. 
And it's just now to find the walls here. Everything's great. And chapter 13 is this incredibly anticlimactic note. I just love, and sometimes I don't love, but sometimes I, I just I love the realism of the Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah concludes on this note that just may seem so anticlimactic. Here we see in chapter 13, God's people struggling with the very same things that they've been struggling with the rest of the entire book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're struggling with how to be separate from the world. They're struggling with supporting worship. They're struggling with celebrating the Sabbath and observing it. They're, they're struggling still in being selective about who they marry. All of these things are still ongoing. These have been the major issues throughout the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the issues that led to them being exiled, being, being, being cast out of, the, of the, the, the promised land. And here they are, the very last chapter, still struggling. And the question that presents them is that, do they want that kind of accountability? Do they want that kind of change? Do they want to be healed? Because it leads to real confrontation. So in Nehemiah 13, I want to walk through these. So the idea is very simple, that to, be, to make a difference in the world, if we want to heal, if we want to be part of the solution, if we want to make a difference in the world, we have to do four things. First, it means that we must be separate from the world. We must be separate from the world. Look in, look in chapter 13 here. We read here on verse, these first three verses. Says, on, the day, on, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. Why? Verse 2, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. And so you see here, we see that as, the, as the Bible is being read, there's this call to be separate from the world. And again, this is to be understand, be clear what's being said here. It's, it's, this is not just simply excluding other ethnicities because of their ethnicity. It's excluding other ethnicities who do not profess faith in, 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 the, God of, in the God of Israel. In fact, you, all, all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, but also throughout the, other, other, the rest of the Old Testament, we see, we see um, other nationalities, other people groups readily joining themselves with the people of God. I mean, Moses himself married, married uh, a, a non-Israelite woman. There's nothing wrong with that. But there has to be an allegiance to Yahweh. There has to be an identification that they, in fact, share in the values they share in the, the laws and the traditions. They share in the same common allegiance as the people of Israel. And so we're seeing here, in these first three verses, a recognition that they're not, they're not actually separate from the world. And, we're to be, and God's people are to be separate, not because we're better. Listen to this, but because we've been blessed. And we see that in this, these first three chapters. I won't go into the details, but the story that's being, that's being recalled here is from the book of Numbers. God's people had left. Um, they left Egypt. They'd gone uh, in, in through the wilderness. They were coming into the promised land, and the, the various people groups, especially the Moabites, saw them, and they, they summoned this, this false prophet to curse God's people. And when God's people, all, and all that this false prophet could do is actually bless, bless his people. And that's because God's people 
are blessed. We have received from God undeserved mercy, undeserved favor. We've received a life and wisdom and hope. And why have we been blessed? It's to bless others. Why have we been shown mercy? It's to show mercy. I'm going to ask you this morning, is that, is that me? Am I being different from the world? Do, do I want to be different from the world? Do I see myself as absolutely in need of a doctor? Again, it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm sick. It's another thing to go to the doctor. Do you see the difference? Real Christians, those who are separate from the world, are those who go to the doctor. They have real accountability in their lives. They, have, they, have, they, have, they are seeking to try to grow through the means of grace, through real friendships with other Christians, through, through small groups, through the preaching of the God's word, through the, the, the various means laid out in the scriptures. They are seeking to grow and to be known. How encouraging it is to me when, someone, when, when one of you takes the risk emailing me, texting me, and saying, hey, can we meet? There's something I want to talk about. Or, or, or it doesn't have to be a, something, a problem. It could be something like, hey, um, I, I really want to learn how to be a better father, a better parent, a better a spouse. Or I, want to learn how, I want to think about my career in, in a way that really is glorifying to the Lord. Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming into retirement right now, and I'm thinking, this whole retirement thing, how do I do that? What does it mean to be a Christian and be retired? And you're thinking about, how do I do this? How do I be separate from the world? Not, not superior to the world, but separate from the world. See, Christians are not choice, but they are chosen. And they're not chosen to simply exist. They're chosen to make a difference in the world. So we're to, and we're to do that together as a community. This is, we're to do it together as a family, as, a, as the people of God, as a local church. We're to be loving and caring of one another. Look around this morning. Who's not here? Who's not here? What if you were to follow up with them? Not like, hey, where were you today? But like, hey, I missed you. I missed you today. Everything okay? Because we're committed to each other. Think about that. Just stop, look around, and think, you know what? I'm going to, this afternoon, I'm going to call that person. I'm going to text them. Tell them I missed them. Ask them if they're okay. See, ask them if you can serve them anyway. We're to be separate from the world. Second, we're to be supportive of worship. In verses 4 through 14, we see how we see this very practical situation where you have the temple of God, the temple has, has storerooms, and those storerooms are, are for, for a number of different uh, things. Some of them are for keeping various instruments of worship. Others of them, of these storerooms, are simply to keep the various tithes that the people would bring. They would be between tithes of new wine and grain and all various, uh, various agricultural products. And those products were usually given to the Levites and the priests. Why? So they could, they could do their thing. It was a way of supporting the, the various ministries of the, t- of the, t- of the, of the temple. 
And here we see that there's, there, there's, a, there's, there's been a neglect of that, and not only a neglect, but there's actually been a, a sort of a, a renting out, if you will, of the temple for, for, for someone who's not even, not even an Israelite. And so it's in verses 4 through 14. I won't, I won't take the time to read them, but we see a neglect of the various logistical dimensions of worship. And understand that for the people of God, worship is everything. It's everything. And, and, and it's, it's, it's you and me coming on a Sunday morning. It's you and me, or you tuning in via live stream. It's us gathering as the people of God to hear of the wonders of God that changes us, that makes us, that renews us, that gives us life. And when we support worship, we then receive God's word. And as Jesus said, quoting the book of Deuteronomy, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So what do, what do God's people do to be different? First, so important. First, they are separate from the world. Second, they're all about supporting worship. And it's in that time of worship that, that we remember who God is. Listen, this is so important. Just of ourselves, we forget God's character. We do. We underestimate him. And unless we're coming every Sunday and we're hearing about God's incredibly scandalous welcome, that he is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, if we don't believe that, we'll underestimate his mercy and we'll, we'll fall into sin and in our sin we'll think, he doesn't want me anymore. It's too late for me. Or others will sin against us and we'll think, you know what, I'm done with them. I, I forget how, how he's welcomed me, so why should I welcome them? I've forgotten how much I've been forgiven, so why would I forgive them? Every Sunday we need to hear of the wondrous welcome of our Lord Jesus Christ. He indeed is this wonderful friend of the most vile, of the most lost. And when we give to worship, when we support worship, we're supporting the, the preaching of God's word. We're supporting this daily reminder of who he is and what he's done. And it's not only his welcome. We hear, we hear every week we're to hear of his wondrous wisdom, a wondrous wisdom that his ways are brilliant. They're better. His law is good. And we see how to live a way of life that is just so different, so just frankly, just so strange sometimes. And yet so amazingly good. We get to interact with people whose lives have been changed by God's word. And we think, you know what? I really respect that person. I want to be like that person. So something truly beautiful about the, 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 the gathering of God's people to hear of his wondrous welcome, to hear of his wisdom, and most supremely, as I've said this morning, to hear of his holiness, his wonder. We need to hear of God's holiness day in and day out. Why? Because he is someone who can do things that we can't begin to imagine. See, what I do is I look at my future, I look at my situation, and I think nothing good can come from this. Nothing good can come from my sin. Nothing good can come from this, this situation. I'm always underestimating that God can bring anything good out of the evil in front of me. And when I hear of God's holiness, when I'm reminded of who he is, it means, that, oh, he can do whatever he wants to do. Just because I can't see good here doesn't mean there's not going to be good. 
Just because I can't see what's going to happen next doesn't mean that he doesn't have something great in store for me. I'm reminded that he is holy and that he can take evil and bring so much good out of it. He can take death and bring life out of it. He can bring conflict and bring peace and intimacy out of it. Because he is holy. There's no one as resourceful. There's no one as shrewd. There's no one as sly as he is. See, when I lose sight of God's holiness, I give way to hopelessness. The key to hope is knowing that he is holy, that he's greater. Okay? So that's what we, when we support worship, that's what we're doing. So how do we be different in the world? First, we must be separate from the world. Second, we must support worship. Third, we're to celebrate the Sabbath. Celebrate this in verse 15. It says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, and figs and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles. Now listen, this is important. Who especially is running the show? Who especially are those who are, who are breaking the Sabbath? It's the influencers. It's the money makers. It's those who have resources. Verse 70, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you were doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So he explains that the, various, uh, the various actions that he takes to correct the situation and make sure that the Sabbath is upheld. Now, for some of you, you may think, that, you know, what is the Sabbath about? Like, what's the point? The point is very simple, but very profound. That we have six days for work, and the seventh is a day that we stop to recognize that God is our provider. He's going to provide for us. And I can't tell you how profound that is. Because it says that I don't have to work all the time. I'm not the decisive agent in my life. I don't have to worry about caring for myself. I don't have to be a keeper. I don't have to be a taker. Because there's someone who's watching out for me. There's someone who's providing for me. And when, I'm, when I know I'm provided for, several things happen that are absolutely world-changing. First, I actually start to be a giver. If God is giving, he's providing for me, if I know that he's looking out for me, that he's provided for me, I'm going to provide for others. I'm going to take that risk. Sunday, the Sabbath day, is a day of mercy. So revolutionary. Saying, look, you don't do any work, and make sure who else isn't doing any work. Your spouse, your children, your maidservants, your manservants the alien within your gates, the nobodies, the those who are so easily exploited. Do you hear that? 
And this is exactly what this text is about. It's about working harder every single day, making sure all the little people are working as hard as possible because I am a taker. I'm about exploiting the little ones and making sure that I've got, I've built my kingdom. And that's exactly what happens when the Sabbath becomes neglected. You know, it's been said that the Sabbath is the greatest labor protection law in, in, in all of world history. It protects the little ones. Isn't that beautiful? It reminds us that there is a provider. That I don't have to be a taker. I don't have to be a keeper. I can be a giver. And so it, the Sabbath reminds us that I have a provider. And ready for this? I don't need to be afraid. The Sabbath reminds us that others are persons. They're not props. They're persons to be loved, not props to be used let me just ask you, do you want to communicate the importance of your faith to others? Do you really want to show others that your faith matters? Observe the Sabbath. Observe it. Regular worship attendance. Family members, hey, family members say, hey, we're going to go do this on Sunday. Come join us. Yeah, sorry, I can't. You know, we're, we're, we're going, we're going we, I mean, our faith is super important. We want to go worship on Sunday. Hey, there's a game on Sunday. There's a game. You want to join us for the game, play in the game? Oh, no, we can't do that. No, we, we, we worship the Lord on Sundays. And it will be awkward. It will be, seem weird. It will seem strange. But people, but believe me, I have known Christians who've come to faith because people who've come to faith, they've become Christians because they have wondered what is going on. That really is important to them. Why is that so important? What is it you guys do? It's this very quiet, very passive, but very real way of letting the world know that your faith really matters. So how do we be different in the world? First, we're separate from the world. We support worship. We celebrate the Sabbath. And finally, we're selective in who we marry. Verse 23 and following speaks of, it says, Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, from Ammon, and Moab, um, and it speaks of the, their children uh, being of mixed descent and he, how he rebukes them. In fact, his, he, he very controversially, he, he, uh, he resorts to a, matter, a measure of violence in doing this. Verse 25, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your own sons or for yourselves. And then in verse 26, in the very same way with the Sabbath, he says the same thing here. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now, must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness? and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. There's probably no bigger decision that you can make in life in terms of relationships than who you marry. You know, in my pre-engagement counseling, I've done this for years. I make it fairly brief. There are three sessions, and the three sessions cover the three things that destroy marriages most. The first is all about life trajectory. It's about shared values. Do we want the same things? 
Do we fear the same things? Do we care about the same things? And that's exactly what he's talking about. Because a marriage that, that is, has different life trajectories is a marriage that's going to be pulled apart. And here he's speaking of, he's saying, look, it's, who you marry matters in a big way. It's, there's really little more that can say about your faith and whom you decide to marry. Because marriage, at the end of the day, is an alliance. It's an alliance that's not really about us. It's for us, but not about us. And it's about where we're going in the world and what kind of impact we're going to make in the world. So again, being selective about whom we marry. It's about, as parents, doing a timeout and having heart-to-heart conversations with our high schoolers, with our college students, with our 20-somethings, and saying, look, whom do you want to marry and why? Being sober about it. Not, not scrupulous, not sort of anal, not just legalistic, but, but having these real conversations about what marriage is really about and how hard marriage is. And how you, you've got to be married to someone who can see their sin, who wants to change, right? Who wants to grow, who wants to be held accountable to a local church. I don't think there's any more loving thing that a, a spouse can do than to look at their, their husband or wife and say, do you see that, those, leader, those leaders over there? Do you see that the leaders of that church, as flawed as they are, as strange as they are, whatever, but I want you to know that if I ever do anything stupid, if I am ever stubborn and refuse to listen, you go and you talk to them, and they'll come and talk to me that I'm actually really accountable because I really want to grow and I know how stubborn I can be. I know how difficult I can, I, can, I can be to live with. And I want to be accountable to these leaders as flawed as they are. What an incredible thing. That's crazy. How often do you see that in this world today? But that's what it means to be selective in marriage. It means to, be, to recognize that, hey, I can't do this marriage thing on my own. I need, we need the, the, the people of God. We need mentorship. We're a young couple starting out. We need that sort of uh, community and accountability in our lives. Let me close with this. Um, a number of years ago, there was a medical missionary, um, Thompson uh, was his last name. I can't remember his first name, but he was uh, um, wonderful. He was actually a medical missionary. He was a medical doctor, and he was in Africa. And he tells the story of a regular exchange. We'd go to the market um, regularly, and he would see a boy there, a little boy, I don't know, probably eight years old, eight or ten years old. And this little boy, um, he could see under his skin, had a, had, a, had a horrible skin disease, a skin disease that kept growing. Um, and, and the boy knew that the missionary was a doctor. The boy's name was, was, was Donald. And he would talk to Donald, uh, you know, ever so often in the market, trying to, you know, minister to him and get to know him. And one day he, he was able to talk, was talking to him, was knelt down and said, Donald, I can heal your skin disease. I can make you better. But I want you to know it's going to be very painful. And it took Donald about a week or so of thinking about it, wondering about it, and one day he came to the doctor 
and said, I want to be healed. And it was it's amazing. It's really a hard way. He go, the, the, in his story, the missionary goes on to describe how the next month or two were a living hell for Donald. That he has to have he has skin removed, skin grafts placed on all the, the, the pain of, of healing. But that's what it means to be a Christian. It means to say, you know, I want to be healed. I want to undergo the, the, the shame of confessing my sin. I'm willing to undergo the, the guilt, of the, the, the shame of being known that I have failed in all these ways. I want that accountability. I want someone to say, whoa, whoa, time out. Are you sure you're okay? I want to grow. I want to change. Or at the very least to say, I want to want to change. I mean, we, we sing that song, Spirit of the Living God, because we're asking for God. We're saying, I can't change on my own. There is no way I am going to change. My habits are too ingrown. My, my, the lies that I believe too deep-seated, I cannot change on my own. I need you, to God, to break into my life and help me to see new things. Help me to seek new things. I am dying for your help. You, we, if, you, if you open the bulletin, you'll, you'll see that prayer for purity. Every Sunday we are asking the Holy Spirit to enable us to worship God, to change our hearts because we can't do it. The Bible is incredibly cynical about humanity. We can't do this thing on our own. And the Christian says, I am so sick and I absolutely need a doctor. I need someone to help me. And so we come humbly and fearfully to a doctor saying, I need healing, knowing that it's going to be painful. We close with these words. Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Listen to these beautiful words. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who is excluded from the, the church of God? The righteous. To be one of his children, you have to be a sinner, a big sinner. You've got to be very sick, but you've got to know it. And you've got to want to change. Listen, I'm here, I don't have, I'm not the doctor. I'm just a fellow patient like you. But I've received some treatment. <laughs> I know some good medicine. And we can walk together in that treatment. There's nothing more discouraging to me than to have the medicine and see that the patients don't really want it. Your life can be better than it is. It can, your marriage can be better than it is. In fact, it can be so much better. And gang, I'm here to help you win. I, I will never judge you. I will never push you away. I will never, I'll never be surprised. As a minister, I get to live a thousand lives and I've, I've seen pretty much everything. In that, in that counseling, in the office over there, I have heard some of the most heartbreaking stories. I will weep with you. I will, will, will laugh together. We'll cry together. We'll get angry together. We'll get scared together. But I'm here for you. 
And far more importantly, Jesus is here for you. And he is our doctor. He's our healer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how beautiful it is that we have in Jesus one who is a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And how, Father, how amazing it is to read the story where Nehemiah is so courageous. Father, doing so probably in ways that are flawed, but, Lord, still seeking to have the courage to call the people of God to be something different. Not a bar where we can just do whatever we want to whenever. Not a gym that is so exclusive where only the strong can, can, can make it. But, Father, a hospital. Help us to be a hospital. Help us to be patients who are so ready to admit that we are in need of a doctor. Help us to be patients that work together so that we can bring healing, healing to ourselves, but, Father, healing to this world. Father, thank you that you have given us life in your Son, Jesus, that he was the one who took our illness upon himself, our sin upon himself, and went all the way down, was utterly forsaken by you, that we might be forever accepted by you. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the peace that you give through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.